Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I don't know why I'm spending 30 seconds defending Rush Limbaugh, but anyway. Hey, Adapters, this is a good one. We're joined by David Roberts from Vox News, and you're going to have to stick around to make sense of David's quote. Okay, so yes, famed climate and energy writer David Roberts takes a visit to America Adapts. We dive right in on media coverage of the two recent hurricanes, Irma and Harvey. David then talks about his transition from working at Grist Environmental News to its much larger and more complex law at Fox News. We then dive right into adaptation. David has mainly focused on energy issues, but on occasion he ponders what it really means to adapt to climate change. That's what we talk about. I really loved this conversation. It got me thinking about some of the bigger issues that most of us haven't even started to consider. Modern society has yet to step back and contemplate what adapting to climate change really means. People like David are taking the first steps thinking about these monumental issues. Okay, a little housekeeping first. First off, thanks to, the, to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization and accepting tax-deductible donations. Go to americaadapts.org and you can easily find the donate page where you can give a one-time donation or better yet, a recurring monthly donation. For the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. I mean that. For those wavering... Just want to say I received emails from those who have donated and those emails generally start. I meant to do this a while ago. So if you were thinking about it, take a visit to the website. For foundations and corporate donors looking to learn more about the podcast, please contact me at americadaps at gmail.com. So future episodes, I'm headed to the annual Landscape Architects Conference in Los Angeles in late October. I'm also doing my first live recording in conjunction with the DC PodFest in November. I'll be in a bar on stage in front of a group of science-loving millennials. I'll have more details on that event in the coming month for those in the DC area who might want to attend. Okay, let's get to David Roberts. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. I have a very exciting episode this week. With me today is David Roberts, famed reporter with Grist Environmental News, now writing for the online news site Fox. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm a really huge fan of your work, and I was trying to think of how I describe some of your work, and especially on adaptation, and I think the word vexing comes to mind. And <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's clear with, with if, you, if you know too much about this podcast, but the emphasis really is on the adaptation side of climate change, and you've written a lot on the subject. And I think some of the things that you've written will make people in the adaptation universe quite uncomfortable, and you think that's accurate. I don't know, actually. I mean, most of my most of my uh, history and work has been focused on the mitigation side on, on on clean energy, and mostly, you know, I've done a thing or two on adaptation here and there. But I don't. I have to confess that I don't have a good sense of the adaptation community and sort of where their focus is and what their, you know, what their uh, uh, worldview is. So I'm interested to hear <laughs> what. <laughs> In how how I've offended them. Okay, before we jump into some of this adaptation talk, it's been actually a really rather crazy few weeks with these two major hurricanes hitting the United States, and you've covered it. And I'm just curious, what has your impression been of the media's coverage of these two storms? I mean, it's positives, negatives. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, it's always a difficult question to answer about media since it's, I mean, it's just 
different in a lot of ways, and it's hard to know without the sort of uh, clarity of a little historical perspective whether it's good or bad or it's going to work or not. But my impression is sort of there's more good coverage of this, and I'm talking specifically sort of from a kind of a climate or environmental angle. There's more good reporting on this than there has been about any of any previous events like this, but there's also just more reporting period about it. So, you know, this is sort of our modern media environment. Like there's good stuff out there. If you know where to go, look and find it. It's very easy to become educated, well-educated about this, but at the same time, the pace of events and the sheer quantity of media now, you know, just the sheer bulk of like daily writing on the internet means that every sort of like a side effect of that is that everything kind of just gets smoothed out and becomes a blur. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. so I think it's, there's lots of good information out there about these hurricanes and there's lots of good coverage. But my question is sort of whether your average news media consumer is capable of picking (laughs) individual events out of the chaos anymore and appreciating their significance, you know, and that's not something any individual reporter has control over. It's just sort of the nature of the media these days. You know, what's really unique about a hurricane, and I guess a bit frustrating too, is that you have all this time between, okay, there it is, and it might take a week or two weeks, and you almost go through debates and you're finished those debates even before the storm is hit and this notion of like should you talk about climate change during a hurricane and we almost went through that whole conversation and irma hadn't even hit yet and it's we're almost moving on before it's even hit yeah it doesn't the pace of i mean this is sort of like a parable about climate change right the pace of hurricanes does not sync up well with the pace of our media metabolism and that's you know obviously even more true from most other processes involved in in climate change but yeah i mean the one the one criticism i've had i would have and this is probably just like me being cynical because i've been doing this for so long but i sort of feel like now like here's a hurricane i could tell you in advance (laughs) i could have told you in advance of harvey exactly the set of arguments that would be had, exactly what the people on the different side of the arguments would say. I could have written, you know, 80% of the coverage in advance just because we've been through this before, you know, these same arguments. Well, just between you and me, that piece you did, I think it was like the nine points, and this is something you wrote after Harvey. Did you have most of that written before you actually published it? You know what I'm talking the piece uh, I'm talking about I forgot the headline but it's like the nine things about Harvey and uh, right. change. so <laughs> did you ha- right. did you have it written Well I'll tell you how that came about my editors you know were like there's a giant hurricane coming you should say something about it you should say something about it like you got to weigh in here and I'm like oh my god I've said everything there is to say about <laughs> this subject like what else is there for me to say so I was like Rather than take one point and write yet another post about it, I was like, I know, I'll just say everything I have to say in in a list format and get it all out of the way, and then I'll just republish that damn article every time a hurricane happens. So, so no, it wasn't written in advance, but all those – it's not like I had to do any particular original thinking or research to put that together. You know what I mean? Because it's the same, like I said, it's the same ground we've tread before. I think one beautiful moment in all this sort of pre-hurricane coverage is that 
Rush Limbaugh, he was on top of this, too. I mean, he was getting frustrated with, oh, this is a chance for all those people to come talk about all these issues and climate change. And then, like, the next day, he had to evacuate from his home. And so that there was one little beautiful moment about <laughs> Rush's, uh, I guess, interpretation of how the media was covering the event. Yeah, that's that's a nice little parable. Although, you know, from his point of view, I actually think <laughs> this is – the rare case, maybe the only time in my life when I'll say this, but Rush got a little bit of a of a bad go at all that. He was never saying there wasn't a hurricane. Like if you look at what he says, he just is saying there are people who have interests in hyping this up and keep that in mind. You know, which is like which is like mildly irresponsible, but it's not the grossly irresponsible thing that he was charged with saying, I don't know why I'm spending 30 seconds defending Rush Limbaugh, but anyway. <laughs> and I got it captured on audio. Excellent. <laughs> okay. And I just sort of a final question with the hurricanes is that talking about climate change, and you talked a little bit about it, but then there's folks that say it really is in bad taste. And I was trying to come up with sort of like, what's an example? Would you lecture someone that was at a, car crash for drunk drive and i'm these are all very poor ones but i'm trying to get it in my head and i think you should take advantage of talking about climate change but at the same time there's that notion of people are going through this kind of horror that are getting hit is it the time to talk about it you know of course i of course it is and and, and the question of whether it's time is so is just one of these how do i put it like I, I said there's so much media. There's so many people now writing daily on the Internet, covering news. They all need something to say. So this question of whether this is the right time to talk about climate change is just the kind of thing that the media makes up for itself to talk about so people have something to write about. You know what I mean? Like, what if we decided, no, people are still going to bring it up anyway. Like, what is the resolution of that conversation? Like, what what resolution could that ever have? Like, people are going to talk about what they're going to talk about. Why are we? But anyway, I, I mean, I think this notion that people who are suffering trauma that you should focus exclusively and 100% on their trauma and recovery until such time as they are recovered, and then you can start talking about the causes of, of the trauma, is something people only apply to subjects that they don't want to talk about the causes. Do you know what I mean? Like if it was a different cause, if it was some conservative thing that caused something bad to happen – all this talk about not politicizing it would immediately go out the window. Like if it was a terrorist attack, remember those? Mm. Remember terrorist attacks? Like do they ever pause before politicizing those? The whole idea that you shouldn't politicize something is is one of these procedural arguments that no one genuinely believes. They just use it as a as a weapon against their opponents opportunistically. So I don't think it's worth expending a brain cell on, honestly. Like of course we're going to fucking talk about all aspects of the hurricane cuz it's happening, and we're sitting around writing to each other. So why should we talk about it? It's just a, it's just a dumb question, I think. And I do think that window where we're all just kind of waiting for it to hit. There are a lot of conversations. If people actually learn a thing or two before that hits, know. you know what? Let's take advantage of it. So and, and 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 honestly, for any given piece, you or I write or say. 99.9% of our audience is going to be people who are not experiencing a hurricane. It's not like we're all, it's like the whole national media is just writing to the citizens of Houston. Like, I don't know. The, the, that whole discussion just irks me. I don't think anybody really takes it seriously. They're just trying to 
it's just an opportunist, opportunistic ding on an opponent. It's filler. Okay, I'm pivoting a little here. So you are relatively new to Vox, and so I was gonna, I'm going to ask you why you made the move. But first, I want to read the tagline from Grist. A nonprofit news or for people who want a planet that doesn't burn and a future that doesn't suck. So that's that's a pretty specific work culture, I imagine. So does Vox compare? Because their tagline, I love Vox. I read it all the time, but their tagline is actually quite boring compared to that. And so why did you make this move? And, you know, there, there must be a reason. And, and are you enjoying yourself so far there? Well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> And I and my story through journalism is so idiosyncratic. I don't know that there's any lessons to be drawn from it. But basically, like, I was hired at Grisway back in 2003 or four, I think, with no journalism experience, oh, wow. no no environmental experience, no experience really doing anything except being a philosophy uh, grad student, <laughs> which is not. <laughs> which does not practically prepare you for many professions. And, and, and it was a Craigslist ad, like, we need a, an editorial assistant. And so I just wrote this long cover letter, like, I have no experience in any of the relevant fields, but I really need a job, and I can write grammatically. And they're like, ah, that's all we need. So, <laughs> so anyway, the point is, it took me 10 years at Grist where I sort of grew into – uh, I, you know, I sort of sl- shifted slowly over to to writing full time. Like when I was first hired, I did everything. I was doing news blurbs and editing and fundraising. I mean, I was the fifth full time employee there, so everybody did everything. So anyway, I worked my way over into writing, and 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 it was nice. It was really nice. And this is something I feel like no one gets in online journalism anymore. Which was, I had a long period where I was just Two things. One, relatively obscure, <laughs> right? And writing to a mostly sympathetic audience. So I had a lot of room to flail about and figure out what the hell I was doing. But B, I was also steadily supported. You know, I had a, a salary. So I had time to sort of develop as a, you know, as a journalist and a thinker and, and, and develop my understanding of these subjects and figure out where I wanted to fit in and, you know, blah, blah, blah. When Vox came calling, which was, you know, you say recently, but it's like two and a half years now, I guess. Really? It's Gosh, all, I felt yeah, I did my homework on this. Oh, wow. It's been a, it's been a blur. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. We'll go on. You, but I thought it was like a year. Time, time, is, time is compressing for all right. of us, I think, uh, because of events. So Vox, you know, what I sort of evolved into at Grist, naturally, not through any particular guidance. Like I was more or less raised by wolves journalistically. I was just left on my own to do what I wanted. I sort of came to this explainer model, you know, that Vox now, that is now central to Vox. I sort of found that naturally. That's sort of uh, naturally what I think I like to do and I'm good at. And they liked it too. And so they invited me and they said, come do what you're doing with us because, you know, you're one of the uh, smart voices on this and we want to have the smart voices. We want to we want to own this subject. We want to be the go to place on this subject of climate change and and clean energy. You know, I won't get into all the trade offs since a lot of it is of interest only to my immediate family. But basically, I have a much bigger audience now exponentially bigger <laughs> way 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 That's bigger attractive. yeah and, and and way more influence because vox is not only big but it has enormous what's the non 
a douchey word here. Brand equity is what I want to say. <laughs> that sounds stupid, but like people, people respect Vox, right? They, they Vox is known as smart and insightful, so it has influence in you know in the in sort of the halls of power. I think beyond even what its size would indicate. So, so that's the attractive part, and, and I feel like a lot of you know, not to ramble on too long about about journalism and climate journalism. Feel free to cut me off whenever you want. But I, but but I feel like climate and, and clean energy journalism has kind of, over the period I was at Grist, it kind of developed and grew, and got better and and and, and um, developed certain, uh, you know, sort of conclusions and frameworks and whatever, all more or less outside the view of mainstream journalism because it's just a sort of you know. People just haven't paid much attention to to the topic, and when they do, it's in a very sort of shallow and glancing and brief way. So another reason I found moving to Vox attractive is that I viewed it as sort of a way of introducing this large audience to these sort of frameworks and conclusions and trends that are going on and to show them that this is not some weird niche environmental thing that's mostly of interest to people who care about, you know, spotted owls or whatever, but it integrates into all these other political and cultural concerns that you already have. So you care about income distribution, you care about uh, justice or equity, you care about neoliberalism versus, you know, regulations or whatever, you know, all these political arguments you have they're being had here too in the same way. So you should be interested in this stuff, right? You should integrate this stuff into your larger political worldview. That's sort of, from the minute I was hired at Grist, that's always been kind of my unspoken mission, which is to translate, you know, because environmental news is sort of, sort of obscure niche and, and so often boring <laughs> no, no offense to everyone else but so often boring that i would just wanted to convince your average vox reader that they were already interested in it it's not that they had to like adopt start eating kale and loving spotted owls to care about this they already care about the stuff you know they already care about economics they already care about power dynamic and immigration and conflict and all these things you know this subject that you've been ignoring is integrated in the subjects you care about and let me explain why to you that's that's the long version of why i wanted to go to vox and what i intended to do there as to how i've liked it it's all the trade-offs you would expect which is i went from being a medium-sized fish in a small pond to a medium-sized fish in a very big pond <laughs> so so now a like the pressure to produce is greater you know it's just a much faster paced the metabolism is much higher and two i'm surrounded by you know wonderkins who <laughs> can produce vast amounts of very high quality material every single nice. day you know whereas whereas like at grist i was like the hot shit you know, because it was it was a modest backwater kind of low bar kind of thing. But now I'm I'm like the slowest writer at Vox. Like all of a sudden I've been, you know, my context is very different. But you know, I've found a rhythm, and I am enjoying people caring. 
about <laughs> what I write. That's that's nice. Well, so here's a survey of one, and I'm sure you're getting this feedback from other folks. Is that I know Grizz very well, but as you just described, it occurred to me. It's like I actually avoid environmental news myself, and I run a climate change podcast, and of course I get exposed to it in any number of ways. But your pivot from Grizz to Vox, I, now I mean, in my head, I. I look at you differently, and I'm, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know, it is that sort of broader culture and societal way of explaining the pro- topics that you are an expert in. But yeah, you know, you just you you stick to that sort of environmental news theme, and you know, you just kind of get put into that box. And so, yeah, I, I, who knows what the long term benefit is for you? But I think if, if for you speaking to a larger audience, I think that's a, a great thing. And I don't know where I heard it. I don't know if someone was writing on you or if someone. I think we have some common acquaintances. Yeah, you know Randy Olson, the science communicator. Oh yeah. So maybe he mentioned this, but I thought I read it before that what you just described that you have to produce content <laughs> more often is that I look at some of your older pieces at Grist, and it really seems like you did have a chance to ponder uh, these topics, and I, I worry on your behalf that at Vox you're not able to produce the content that you're so f- familiar with producing because of that daily grind. And so that's just some feedback from a fan that, uh, yeah, I because, yeah, you look at b- well, pieces. Believe, believe me, I, I think about uh, little else. Oh, really? okay. <laughs> but, but but that, the, the, the tension is, you know, it's not just me. Every writer at Vox, every writer online faces this same thing, which is sort of the balance of feeding the beast – versus having a chance to step back and do more contemplative stuff. And also, another another transition which m- might interest people who are interested in media as such is at Grist, I viewed what I was doing basically as blogging. And blogging, to me, has a particular sort of character and, and, and you know, sort of habits and whatnot. But then you go to a place like Vox, and this is true, I think, of most modern media you know, when you're writing a blog, it's a serial, you know, it's an ongoing conversation, right? So sometimes you can just add another piece to it with the assumption that people are following the conversation and understand the context, right? So you can just throw up like, hey, I saw this new thing today. It's cool. You know, or just like muse about some deep, you know, some deep subject in some area without having to kind of explain the whole background all over again you know what i mean you can assume people are following along and you can assume basically that the audience is more or less sympathetic and, and and educated you know at least enough to know the basics of what you're talking about but these days almost all the majority of every site's traffic comes from facebook mm-hmm. and that's and that's true of, of vox as well and more generally social media. So when you encounter a piece in social media, like a piece I write, say, and you encounter it on Facebook, you don't encounter it in the context of an ongoing conversation. And there's no guarantee that you've ever seen my name or my byline before. And there's no guarantee that you know anything about climate change or clean energy. You know, So the pieces I write now have to be and this is true of everybody, I think, they have to be more freestanding. Hmm. You know what I mean? They have to sort of stand on their own as a unit uh, that, you know, on its own two feet, which is, you know, it is what it is. It's, <laughs> it's annoying to me. I don't like it. Like it's, I end up having, because especially in my area, like nobody understands anything about our area. You know what I mean? Like in the broad public, like if I say rooftop solar, even that, 
Like, never mind net metering. Just rooftop solar itself, you kind of have to explain what it is because you can't guarantee, you can't assume that anybody knows that anybody's been following you. So that is another reason I think that I have been pushed, not explicitly, but just sort of by the structure of the place to take on kind of smaller and more discreet and more bounded topics that you can plausibly write a self-contained piece about, right, in in, in a day or however long you have to work on it. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, the musing about the, the, the nature of the world, A, those things require a lot of background, and B, you can't crank them out in, in a day, and C, like most people, you know, your hardcore audience is super fascinated by that stuff, but most people on Facebook aren't don't care you know aren't aren't really they're they're looking for they're on their lunch break or whatever you know what i mean that's the that's the standard reading context for a consumer of journalism these days is looking at their phone and scrolling while they're walking between places or or they're at their desk and they're supposed to be working and they're sneaking off to facebook instead and in that context you're not going to be like oh what is the nature of humanity's relationship with <laughs> Na- nature. I will feel like reading three thousand words about that on my lunch break. You know what I mean. So anyway, that like it's not just Vox. It's the nature of journalism and media these days that pushes things in that direction. I think. Wow. You know, I do feel like a dinosaur because I get the Washington Post and I get the paper version and I sit there and I read it every day and I love it. But, I mean, I can I consume news on Facebook. You are a dinosaur. No, no one does oh, that. You know, who, you got to read George Will on it in actual paper because he just feels so oh, ancient. God. You know, it wouldn't seem right to read him online. Should be reading. Should be reading him on papyrus. <laughs> right. Or, uh, right. Sanskrit. Okay, we're gonna do another another pivot here, and that was all very fascinating, by the way. But adaptation, and I, it, it sounds like you haven't pondered oh, right. it as much as I think you've pondered it. But just so <laughs> my, people are interested in climate change, you're listening to the podcast. But I have a lot of people that are doing adaptation out there internationally, <laughs> domestically, and so as I read your your work on adaptation, I, I have my first question here was, why do you have it in for adaptation? <laughs> is that a fair question you know um i well i would dispute your premise although i although i think i understand why why you've come around to that so i'll just explain a little bit of my history of thinking about adaptation and and again i ramble so feel free that was to my second question so you're pivoting perfectly yeah go on <laughs> okay so so when i first you know this gets back to to what i said about my uh my sort of the special gift I got as a journalist, which is 10 years of obscurity in which to develop opinions, right? So when I first encountered climate change and started reading around about it and trying to get my head around about it, especially back then in the early aughts, I think the sort of popular take on adaptation was that it was a way for conservatives to try to dodge the need for mitigation, right? I think that's the general way it was viewed is it's a, it's a, it's a cheat. Basically they're trying to distract you. They're trying to sap the will to do anything to reduce emissions with this gauzy promise that we can just adjust to whatever happens. And that's a siren song, right? It's tempting us away from the true path of mitigation and and it is to be rejected, right? That was, I feel like, fairly common take on the thing back mm-hmm. then 
you know, as, as the subject has evolved and as the people involved in it have evolved and thinking has evolved, I think that's, I think that's mostly faded. I think now everybody has come to terms with the fact that climate change that the adaptation is not a choice. <laughs> it's not something you can choose to do or not do. Like the climate is changing already. There's a certain amount of changing baked in. There's probably, if we're being realistic, a lot more, you know, that's going to come before it's all over. So, so yes, we have to adapt to it. It's not even really conceptually that interesting of a question. Like, of course you fucking have to adapt to the circumstances where you live. So I think, you know, I don't think it, people feel that negatively about adaptation anymore. I do think there is still a small faction of conservatives who try to who try to use adaptation as a way to dodge mitigation. I do still think that exists out there somewhat, but mostly among just sort of dumb right wingers who you know who who cares. So that said. I think probably the reason you get the sense that I have it out for adaptation is that it, it, it traces back to this argument I made about the the moral difference between mitigation and adaptation. I think it's probably that what you're referring back to. Yeah, if yeah, if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Here, here's my take on it. When you mitigate a ton of carbon emissions, say you prevent a ton of carbon emissions, the cost of doing that is localized to you, right? Or, you know, localized to some, you know, whoever's building the solar plant or putting the scrubber on the coal plant or whatever they're doing. The costs are localized, but the benefit of one less ton of carbon in the atmosphere is global because as as you know as everybody knows greenhouse gases go up into the atmosphere and mix and have a global effect their effects are not local their effects are global and therefore the effect of preventing them is global right so everybody who's in the atmosphere benefits in some tiny tiny incremental way from any ton of emissions being prevented, right? So this gives mitigation an interesting moral character, right? It's sort of, there's intrinsically an element of altruism to it. That's not to say it's all altruistic. Like there are, as, as you and I know, there are plenty of investments in mitigation that pay off on their own terms, right? Like solar is economically competitive, like, you know, energy efficiency, you save money. Like there's lots of ways to prevent uh, greenhouse gases that are remunerative in the, in the near term, but there's always that element of altruism to it. It's, it's, you can't eradicate it. If you prevent, you know, if you prevent a, a ton of greenhouse gas, you're preventing it for the entire world. So a, it's egalitarian in that it benefits everybody, but B, the effects of mitigation are also progressive because if the poor suffer most and first from climate change, as, as they do, then any reduction in climate change benefits the poor most and first, right? Mitigation is, morally speaking, there's an element of egalitarianness and progressivism to it that are ineradicable. Even the most selfish 
you know, whatever Wall Street-bound solar investor is, whether inadvertently or not, engaged in altruism as well. Adaptation is very different. Adaptation, the costs are still localized, mostly. It's mostly the people who will be protected by the adaptation that will pay for the adaptation, although there are, you know, there are edge cases. But also, the benefits are localized, meaning if you build a seawall, only the people behind the seawall benefit from the seawall, right? It's not, there's no global benefit, it's just that one set of people. And so it's not egalitarian, it, 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 it's localized, and it's also not progressive, because who's going to have the money to do adaptation, right? To build seawalls and dikes and dams and whatever else. It's going to be people with more money. It's going to be areas with more money, countries with more money, right? The wealthy, you know, when you're distributing stuff, <laughs> the wealthy get more of it if the stuff costs money, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying anything shocking here. So the whole point is, when you spend on adaptation, you're producing a narrow local benefit that is probably, whether purposefully or not, regressive in its effects, i.e. The, 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 the wealthy benefit from it more than poor people. So this is all just to say that, that it is a mistake to discuss mitigation and adaptation as though they are fungible, as though they're the same type of thing, as though there are two alternative ways of preventing suffering that are parallel. They're not, they're not parallel. Now, none of, none of that is to say that adaptation is bad, right? Or that we shouldn't do it. I didn't, in no way mean to make that argument. All, all I'm saying is that because mitigation is, because it's altruistic <laughs> a little bit, it's also remarkable that anyone's doing it, and insofar as they're doing it, should be strongly encouraged, like mitigation needs help, whereas adaptation, to a certain extent, people are going to be motivated on their own to do that, right? Like, you don't need any further inducements for the people of Miami, for instance, to put in place some measures, right? Whereas mitigation needs all the help it can get. So so anyway, the, the point is adaptation's not bad. I just think it's it's not the same kind of thing. It's not a parallel and it's certainly no substitute. You know, probably in a podcast I had 6 months ago I was talking with some adaptation folks and we did bring up that article of yours we we brought you up and I think our position at the time was sort of no one on the adaptation side is arguing like Please, people who are mitigating, please keep doing what you're doing. We, we're we not going to be able to do our jobs if you don't get mitigation under control. But the more I think about it and some of the just reading more of your material is that there's no one on the adaptation side that I know of that is saying don't keep doing things like the Paris Agreement and all these major steps. But if focusing even a little bit on the adaptation side takes away some of the urgency from mitigation, to me that actually is a potential threat. And I think that gets to a little bit between the two extreme, you know, extremes there. And, and I, and I worry that we, oh, well, we can just climate proof ourselves while we're just sort of taking in, incremental approaches to mitigation. You see what I'm saying? I, that, that is certainly a yeah. concern that it just, it. No, it's a, it's a real concern. But, but 
And here I want to make a broader point <laughs> about climate debates and debates about stuff like this. On one hand, it makes a certain intuitive sense, right? A, t- a certain intuitive gut sense that if you adapt and climate proof yourself, you're going to drain the will to mitigate, right? It makes a certain intuitive sense. It also makes a certain intuitive sense to say, well, if you start adapting and you start showing people concretely, oh, climate is real and it's going to be bad and it's on the way and we're having to armor ourselves to protect ourselves, you might get people thinking about it and might make them more amenable to mitigation. In other words, you might sort of trigger their climate consciousness in a way that that causes them to be more amenable to mitigation, right? Now, I could tell you an intuitive, plausible story in either of those directions, but here's the key thing. I'm just talking out my ass, <laughs> and and people's gut impressions and instincts about these things are not reliable guides to social policy. I wish I could inscribe that on the doorway to the Internet. Just because it sounds... Like it makes sense to you doesn't mean it's true. Lots of things turn out to be, you know, when you study social dynamics and do social science, you find lots of sort of counterintuitive things. You find that people don't always react the way you think they were. You you find that social effects of social policies are not always what you think they're going to be. And so if you want to make a, a grand argument about the psychological effects of adaptation or focus on adaptation, you need to find some evidence <laughs> one way or the other, uh, studies or or facts or something. But like so much of discussion, I feel like, about climate change and all these dynamics is just people's gut, right? And, 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 it's, and that's bad, but it's worse because most of the people who are seriously thinking about this are middle-aged white dudes with beards and, and, and their gut instincts tend to accord with one another's, right? (laughs) Like they all have the same gut instincts. And so they all come to think that certain things are obviously true, even though it's gut instinct all the way down. And if you brought in other people, maybe non-white, non-male, non-bearded, non-middle-aged people of various kinds, maybe their gut instincts would be different, right? Maybe they would have a different sense of how things, people react to various things. And maybe that, you, you know, if you can't, if all you've got is your gut instinct as a white bearded dude, you either need hard evidence and 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 some scientific backing for it, or you need a consensus among a diverse uh, group of onlookers, right? One of those two. You cannot go to the internet with nothing but your instinct as a white middle-aged bearded dude and expect that to to carry to carry the day. Okay, so first off, I'm a middle-aged guy, but I, I can't grow a beard. It's just it's I'm incapable. I just I don't I don't have much body hair, and so. But I'm going to – I want to take your point about – I actually have some anecdotal evidence. It's not just all gut. And I want to share this with you because you just brought up the point that maybe adaptation will inspire people to actually take mitigation a bit more seriously. And so 
I got contacted by a listener, and this again is absolutely anecdotal, but it got me thinking about what I'm doing with the podcast. Is it was this white guy, and he said he randomly found the the podcast. He was looking up climate change, and he found it and he started listening. And my emphasis on adaptation really appealed to him, and he basically came out from the beginning saying, I am a climate denier, or I was a climate denier. And then he said he started listening to some episodes, and he liked the whole logical way people were talking about the issue, and this is how they're approaching climate change, and he started doing some more reading on his own, and he said he sort of evolved from being a climate denier to being a climate skeptic. And But he just wanted to let me know that the podcast actually got him thinking about the issue. And to be honest, I never thought I'd have climate deniers. You know, they'd see the climate change in the podcast. Like, they're just not going <laughs> to listen. To this guy's credit, he did. He, he's like, I think, a middle-class hospitality industry guy. And he just started listening to it. And he had a pivot in his thinking. And so maybe there is a kernel of hope that as society begins to adapt to climate change, that I've always looked at mitigation and adaptation as sort of the yin-yang. They're just there, and that's probably a totally inaccurate way of looking at it. But at some point, mitigation <laughs> becomes a subset of adaptation. It's just, of course, we're going to reduce carbon as we adapt our society to the challenge, the greatest challenge humanity ever faced. And so... Sure. And it, it's, it is worth noting, uh, people will inevitably email me <laughs> every time I write about this, it is worth noting that there are policies and approaches that combine the two, right? That, that mitigate as they adapt, uh, that adapt as they mitigate. It's possible to do kind of win-win, win-win things. Like, for instance, just to throw an example out there, you want your electrical grid to move off of coal and onto more uh, renewable energy, maybe coupled with natural gas for now. So that transition reduces greenhouse gas emissions, but also the transition from an um, energy grid that is based around a few large central uh, hubs to an electrical grid that is more distributed with small generators here and there smarter grid, better coordinated, more multi-flow, multi-directional, less hub and spoke, that kind of electrical grid is also more resilient. It's also better able to bounce back after after uh, uh, hurricanes or attacks or, or blackouts or whatnot. You know, like a grid that has little microgrids in it is much more resilient. So that's just one example of something you could do to mitigate that would also have an adaptive function. And there's lots of stuff like that. Well, I want to put this idea in your head, and I don't know if we could talk about it too much now, but just if you get into the adaptation side of things, there's this real over-reliance on the word resilience, and we're going to make resilient communities. And, <laughs> yes, it and is I, a buzzword. And I hate it with a passion, and I use my podcast to kick it in the teeth whenever I can. So all you people out there who like resilience, I'm going to keep bashing it. Well, you know, uh, Alex, I don't know if you uh, – you probably know the work of Alex Stefan pretty well. He uses the term ruggedized. <laughs> That's all right. Which which I think is more evocative. I think it's much better actually at, at conveying what you're trying to do. Well, and so for you to look at resilience, like let's say at Miami, there's been a lot written about what's going to happen to Miami. It's it's doomed. And we quite frankly, we don't want to make Miami a, r- a resilient city. Oh, you you're just punting things. And so as the federal government, and we're taking a pause on that for right now, looks to make the society more resilient, are you actually putting off the hard decisions? I mean, do we have to abandon some areas? Yes, we do. And so this approach toward resilience, which means just kind of be able to bounce back from something, 
adaptation is different. It's a different beast than resilience. And I think a lot of people in that universe aren't seeing the difference between the two. And I would love for you to start right on that. If it's, if you ever think about it, that because it's just, it's, it's a whole society <laughs> well, yeah. emphasis on resilience. It's like, no, we cannot climate proof our way out of all this. Yeah. Yeah. Adapting will mean, uh, abandoning, yes, right. <laughs> you know, retreat. Retreat, retreat in some respects. And as I said in a post I wrote the other day, and I don't know if I really conveyed it like I wanted to, but. Hey, everyone, taking a short break here. Please consider supporting the podcast. The world's best and brightest adapters are coming on the podcast to talk about these important issues. Please consider supporting these efforts. Check out the donate page on the website at americadaps.org. We are so grotesquely unprepared to face those kind of questions. I mean, even the mildest version of those questions that popping up now after these hurricanes, like flood insurance for the people, you know, who, who got flooded out or like what areas get to rebuild and what areas don't get to rebuild. All these, these are just hints, just the slightest hints of things to come. And already we're totally unprepared to deal with them. We're totally irrational in how we do flood insurance. We're totally irrational in how we relocate people or, or compensate people. And just imagine those questions coming up more and more frequently on a larger and larger scale. That's not that far off. So like we are, we are badly need to catch up. <laughs> to to reality on that on on that specifically like when we're talking about relocating all of Miami I mean do you have any idea how we're going to make those decisions and do you think if we make them in a panic <laughs> right in the wake of a disaster that they're going to be made wisely or or justly do you think that uh, equity for Miami's poorest residents is going to be a top line item when when lawmakers are facing this you know these decisions this this is what I was trying to get at with my post the other day is like we got a lot of really big difficult decisions coming up and we are so far from even beginning to grapple so with them. That again was a brilliant piece. And for listeners out there, you know, I actually have it in that in my questions. I was going to do some rapid fire. I wanted you to answer them. And I, I had some other things I want to get to first. I'm not sure if we'll get to that, but for, for listeners, I'm going to post those links on, on the podcast notes. But to me, if you're out there in a government agency or whatever, these are questions that they should be asking. So for you, mm-hmm. I've been a part of a lot of workshops with adaptation planning and it's like, let's do a vulnerability assessment. Let's look at this or that. But, Pondering those questions never comes up. It's sort of like, put your head down, and it's just this sort of unspoken, oh, well, people will do the right things at the right time. Well, no, they won't. No, they won't. And those <laughs> questions really you came up with, listeners, they were brilliant. And I think every adaptation workshop should start off as an icebreaker answering three or four of those. And you don't have to stick to them. It doesn't have to be copied down, but it's just have that conversation because it just – it really brings, I think, some reality to a lot of the sort of, I think, a lot of superficial planning that's going on right now. Yeah, once you start pulling this, that string, <laughs> you find that it's attached it's to a lot of very, very big and very, and this is something else I wanted to convey in the post, is it's not, this is not, I mean, any discussion about, you know, resources and how to distribute resources and who gets what, all those discussions are difficult, but when you are talking about people's homes, Right. There's a there's an extra 
non-financial element here. People have very, very, very strong feelings about their homes and about their land and about their communities and their place, right? So this is not just like your home is worth X, so we're going to pay you X and send you off somewhere else. Like it's not going to be clean like that. There's going to be a lot of people, never mind governments approaching this irrationally. Citizens are definitely going to approach this irrationally. No citizen is going to be thinking, in the bigger picture, does my home really deserve public resources to stay where it is now? Nobody, everybody's going to be like, it's my home. You cannot tell me to leave my home. I demand, you know, everybody's going to want to stay where they they are. And And how are we going to deal with those issues? Who decides to override someone and say, no, you must leave your home. That is a fraught decision. And what level of government is even going to do it? Who are we going to, are we going to elect people to do that? Or is it just, is it going to be some sort of technocrat appointed to make those decisions? Is it going to be a formula? We have no idea. You, you've quoted Chris Flavel before. Um, he's, well, he's from Bloomberg News and he's actually been on the podcast before. And we talked about a federal buyout program up in the New England area. I'm not sure if you're familiar. I think something like blue something where they have a giant chunk of money to buy out some of these neighborhoods that are going to be impacted by future sea level rise or storms. And they're not finding anyone who wants to sell. And I would say to, to Chris yep. is that I'm shocked that they're able to promote the program like they do because think about it. This is like a Sarah Palin moment. It's just like the federal government has a big chunk of your money that they're using to try to destroy <laughs> communities based on a death, it is, it's a death panel for a fake threat of climate change. <laughs> and fortunately, it yep. hasn't gotten like that but i'm I, I was shocked that it's they, they have all this money to spend and i think they've had very few takers and like you just described who wants to blow up communities and uh, they're yeah and eventually eventually somebody's going to be charged with saying to homeowners some subset of homeowners I get that you don't want to move, but you have to, <laughs> right? Talk about talk about freaking Fox News out. The government telling you you have to leave your house is going to be such a shit show. And, and the only way to make that kind of thing work is to start from foundation of trust, right? That's the only way those kind of decisions can be made in an even remotely peaceful and equitable way is if people start with some sense of trust that there's a process set up, that they're being treated fairly, etc. And I don't know if you've noticed, but trust is at a low ebb here in America these days. Not only trust of one another, but trust of government, trust of institutions generally. The only here's something that that I my favorite scary fact that I tell people in all walks of life. If you look at surveys over the last four or five decades, public trust in institutions has steadily declined throughout that entire period. And I'm talking education, journalism, government. The only Institutions that re- that retain high levels of public trust are the military and the police. And I'm just like, sweet dreams, people. Just ponder that for a while. Ponder a future where we're in chaos, where certain communities are being regularly battered, where other people are being asked to chip in to rebuild those communities over and over again. And at a certain point... A decision has to be made to vacate those people from those communities 
all of that taking place in this current atmosphere of political polarization and mistrust and anger and resentment, I just think it's I, – I get why people don't want to look at it. <laughs> I get why people don't want to think about it. It's going to be a shit show, but it's not that far off. You know, It's not that far in the yeah, future. Supercharge the eminent domain policy. It's just oh it's, my God. they're going to just – coastal area, eminent domain. These are going to be whatever. It's just going to be supercharged. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how adaptation might unfold. And so I think when society really embraces adaptation – I, I'm curious on how the political parties will respond. And so let's, let's, I want you to speculate and let's just park the Republicans complete insaneness on the issue of climate change. And if it actually exists, and let's think of we're in a future where they acknowledge it exists and that we have to adapt to it. What party do you think will benefit the most from adapting to climate change? I mean, can you even speculate on such a thing? Well, that's, you know, I feel like my ability to predict political matters has taken grievous blows in the last couple of years and has, has proven itself unreliable in the last couple of years. So I'm much more hesitant about predicting things anymore. But I do want to say one thing by way of background on this about adaptation in general, which I wanted to get across in this podcast at some point, and this is a decent opportunity, is the climate change does not create any special or unique adaptation challenge. In other words, communities are becoming more vulnerable to large-scale financial loss from disaster for a bunch of different reasons, right? And climate change is only really a marginal effect on that uh, today and probably for a while. Mainly it's population, right? There's more and more people building on the coasts. There's more and more people building in these vulnerable areas that never should have been developed in the first place. And, and, and there's more and more sprawl and impermeable surfaces. And there's more and more, uh, you know, uh, mangroves being cut down and, and, and blah, 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 on and on. So my, my point being the need to adapt better to current natural circumstances exists already and would exist even in the absence of climate change. In other words, adaptation, mitigation is entirely tied to climate change. If you didn't have climate change, there'd be no need to reduce carbon emissions. But even if you didn't have climate change, there would still be a need to adapt, right? We're t <laughs> That's what adapt means, right? You, you get used to where you live. And there's more and more people living in more and more vulnerable and dangerous places, and there's more and more disasters happening, and, and financial impacts of disasters are rising. And so this need to adapt better and to improve, pardon me, the resilience and the sort of you know functioning of, of human communities already exists, right? And we're not doing it very well, which, <laughs> which indicates that the dynamics on adaptation are not really climate specific, I guess, is how I would put it. In other words, the need to adapt exists independently of climate change and the resistance to adaptation or, or uh, the inability to do it very well or wisely also exists independently, I think, of climate denialism. Do you know what I'm saying? So this is an issue 
that that climate change is an overlay on, but the core of the issue would would still be there regardless, right? We still need to adapt better <laughs> to reduce damages from disasters, to produce preventable deaths, to reduce nuisance flooding, to reduce you know, um, like, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Atlanta almost ran out of water. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that wasn't totally, again, like climate scientists can dig into it and they say, well, the drought was whatever, 7% more severe than it would have been without climate change. But even without climate change, there probably would have been a drought. And Atlanta's system for dealing with its water sucks and would have sucked in the absence of climate change. And (laughs) Sonny Purdue's (laughs) response, which was to hold prayer ceremonies. Right, right, I remember this. (laughs) To pray for rain, you know. I don't think that's reliable uh, going forward for Atlanta. I'm not sure that's the most reliable strategy for Atlanta. So, so anyway, the point I'm making is just all these dynamics around adaptation are bigger and broader and separate in some sense from climate change. All climate change does is kind of, you know, uh, turn up the heat a little bit on all these discussions, sort of exacerbate existing difficulties. Does that make it sense? It does. And so, I, you know, I guess getting back to the the political bent of how you just described it though oh right yeah let let me let me get back to the politics because the whole reason for making that preliminary point is just to say i don't think that adaptation has any particular ideological valence in other words i don't think it's a natural fit for one party or the other although you know I don't know. Today's Republican Party is against government. So, <laughs> you know, so it, it insofar as you need government to adapt and you very much do, then I guess it's not compatible with the current Republican ideology. But that's just because life in a civilized, advanced society is not compatible with current Republican ideology. But 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 my point is just these decisions Unlike mitigation, again, are going to be very local in character, I think, very regional or local in character and are going to have regional and local dynamics that are different from place to place and are going to have political dynamics that are different from place to place. In other words, I really don't see – I really don't anticipate either party sort of – taking adaptation and making it into a plank or trying to sort of capture the issue or trying to use it for political advantage. It's just too abstract once you pull it out of those local and regional circumstances. You know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of airy and I don't know that it moves people. So I think the, the politics of adaptation are going to be local and regional politics, which to reiterate a point I made earlier, is bad, I think, because if you look at American history and governance, my sense is that insofar as you want justice (laughs) and you want fairness and cosmopolitan universalist ethics or anything like that, generally those come from the federal level and generally local and state and regional decisions tend to be more regressive and made less on ideological grounds and more on just sort of grounds of like who's got money and who's got power and, you know, 
what I mean? So, so my worry, this is, gets back to what I was saying. My worry is that adaptation decisions will not be nationalized as a political issue. They'll just be local and they'll fall along local dynamics, which tend to be ugly, like local and state government tends to be ugly. So I want to read this quote, and I think it contradicts a little bit what you're saying, but maybe it's been a few years since you wrote this. This is that piece about morality of adaptation, and then you wrote, adaptation will strongly appeal to fearful, nationalistic, I don't even know, revanchist, (laughs) revanchist personality types, and in the U.S., at least, most of those folks are conservatives. So, I mean, I know it's part of a broader context of what you were saying there, but, you know, that really stood out to me, is that, I think to your point of, like, adaptation will become very local and and i think it'll appeal to people's baser instinct and i think that's what you're the point you were trying to make with that yeah that's good yeah that's good no that's a good uh footnote insofar as conservatives are forced into doing something say they're in a community that's being battered by hurricanes whatever over and over again or regular droughts or whatever and they're sort of like the the it's become a political problem and they have to do something about it they're definitely going to be more inclined to protect their own selves and their own communities than they are to do something quasi altruistic <laughs> to reduce emissions, thereby incrementally improving the lives of distant people 10 to 20 years hence. <laughs> right? So, I mean, any human being, honestly, I shouldn't even put that on conservatives. Any human being is going to have these tribalist instincts. So when there's threat or danger, every human being draws their, their circle of moral concern inward, right? That's what stress and danger do to us. They make us, they literally make us more conservative. So, Again, this is, this is is the whole reason I try to approach this moral question is the way I see this unfolding is as climate impacts get worse and worse and we're put under more stress and trauma, it's going to exacerbate those tribalist tendencies and we're going to be tempted to just pull inward and build walls around us and, and become Fortress America as whatever that author damn it there's a recent book mm. about about just this and it was raising just this possibility of sort of like retrenchment selfishness and injustice right again you're back to it being very regressive so in that sense i do think any trauma and danger and threat especially of any sort of immediate visceral kind intrinsically favors conservative politics and there's and there's social science mm-hmm. on that because it makes us more because it draws our moral concern inward it draws our you know it's maslow's hierarchy or whatever like you, you draw you know you protect what's yours when, when threats come so so this is this is why i think you know, there's so many reasons why it's important to act now on climate change, why, why acting now is better than acting tomorrow. You know, there's a million reasons, including the physical dynamics of, of, of uh, carbon dioxide and all the rest of it. But one of many reasons why it's very important to do as much mitigation as possible as soon as possible is that once the effects of climate change start getting worse and once people start feeling actually tangibly 
battered and endangered by it, the will for altruistic mitigation, I feel like, is going to drain away somewhat. And the will toward building walls, like, like you know, screw Bangladesh, build me a seawall, I don't want to lose my home again, that kind of thinking is going to come more and more to the fore. So the challenge of garnering political support for mitigation is, I worry, I go back and forth on this, as you can tell, I worry, going to get only get harder as, as, as time goes on. Well, I think it'd be interesting, especially with what happened with Houston and I think lesser extent to Florida is that now as Houston starts to rebuild and I'm actually hoping to go to Houston, maybe in a few months when the dust is settled or the waters have receded and talked to the, is there climate change adaptation occurring differently now? And I, I, I'm hoping to do that, but look what you just described, you had Sandy hit new England and they responded in a big way with adaptation, a lot of money dedicated to that. How will Houston respond? And will it be Fortress Houston? And will they not even acknowledge the larger issue of climate change? And I hope some sociologists and academics are going to kind of look at this as an opportunity to learn. Because those, I think, lessons, because it, you had two very different type of demographics in New England versus what in Houston. How can you apply yeah. that to like broader? And political political yeah. cultures, too. Very different political cultures. Very different, um, you know, sort of zoning and philosophy of, of growth and very different. My, you know, this is like I warned against using our gut instincts, so this should be taken provisionally, but my gut instinct is that the easiest, the path of least resistance for places like Houston are just get the shit back together and return to normal. That's what people want to do, right? Psychologically, that's the overwhelming desire, I think, on the on the on the part of the people of Houston and probably the politicians of Houston is let's just get this behind us, right? And that instinct works against the wiser instinct of let's use this as an opportunity to really think through how we can make ourselves safer in the long term. So those two instincts or those two forces will be playing off each other. You know, and, and, and getting back to what you said about the difference between the cultures, my, my sort of gut sense is that Houstonians have this kind of freewheeling, fuck it, let's just get back to growing and prospering attitude that is going to mean my guess is that the that the long term changes that will emerge from this will be very few <laughs> and modest. Got it's, that, Houston. That's a cynical it's a cynical prediction, but but maybe they'll prove me wrong. You know, I hope so. I lived in Houston for a few months, and you know, people of Houston were lovely, but I hated it. Just it's it's a sprawling mess of a city, and my gut instinct is that they'll build. They have those you know those lagoons, the concrete lagoons that just channel the water out. They'll build more of those, and they'll build bigger reservoirs. That because that, that, yeah. that you mentioned yeah. zoning, and Houston <clears throat> is famously known for not having any zoning, and I've lived that, and it's. Awful, but for whatever reason, when you some people get in that mindset and they really love that kind of sprawling atmosphere to live in, and that just yeah. Well, people love cheap houses, is what they love, and that's what Houston can provide. When you have no zoning, your housing is cheap. Yeah, but you got to drive everywhere; it's a nightmare. <laughs> All right, so a, a few more questions for you, David. We, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I just want to let you kind of wrap because I started this off with like, why do you have it in for adaptation? I think you've explained relatively well. <laughs> you've evolved on this issue since you first started writing, it. and just I just want to kind of give you a final say on that. Was that accurate? And you know, where where are you at on adaptation? 
Yeah, I have n- nothing against adaptation. It would be like it would be like having something against I don't I don't I don't know the right analogy like you know if it gets hot outside, yes, go inside, right? There you are adapting. Why being against that is like being against a fundamental biological imperative, you know, there's no it would be senseless to be against it. My my worry is just that mitigation is very necessary unless we want changes that are so extreme that we basically can't adapt to them, <laughs> right? I think we all agree on this point, and we need lots of mitigation, and we need it really quick. And for various reasons, mitigation is not a natural, like, me me spending money to make the lives of future Bangladeshis better is not a natural thing for people to do, <laughs> right? Either psychologically or economically or politically, it's not. It it, it goes against various uh, various drives and instincts and and tendencies humans have. So it's a miracle it's happening at all, and we need a lot of it really quickly. So my sense is just we need to be all guns blazing on mitigation right while we still can while there's still appetite for it because i think when climate gets you know people are constantly people constantly have this one of my least favorite tropes in climate journalism is this notion that once things get really bad people will wake up to climate change, right? I'm sure you've seen this a million times. Like once there's a really bad storm or once there's two really bad storms in a row, people will realize that climate change is real. They'll wake up to it and they'll start acting. I think that is, to a first approximation, the opposite of what's going (laughs) to – the truth. (laughs) It's the opposite of what's going to happen. My worry is that once things get bad and people start feeling battered and threatened – they're going to pull their concern inward as they do. They're going to worry about themselves and their families and their communities as people do when they're under threat. And and focus is going to turn inward. And it's already in America's, let's just say, in in character <laughs> for America to more or less worry about itself, you know? So we'll be okay. And, it, and, and the structure of the problem makes this even more difficult because – just physically, America will is gonna suffer uh, a lot. Other a lot of other places are gonna suffer before us and worse than us, right? Even as we have the majority of the capacity to do something about it, right? This is the sort of vicious nature of the problem. But my my sense is just that once America starts feeling threatened by this, what little ad, what little uh, appetite for you know, mitigation there is or for spending money for other people (laughs) there is, is going to drain away. So I have zero against adaptation. Like I said, adaptation would be something that we needed to do even in the absence of climate change, just on a world our size with 9 billion people on it. It's tricky to figure out how to live in such a way that you don't have nature kicking you in the ass regularly. So, of course, we need to be working on that. Of course, 
insofar as that prevents suffering, it's a good thing to do. And I think that that certainly no one in the climate community should be discouraging anyone from doing it, who's doing it or trying to organize it, who's trying to organize it. I just think that my personal moral calculus is mitigation's harder and more time limited, right? The window for it is is shorter and the instincts pushing and, and the forces pushing against it are are bigger and it's more needful basically for me to devote my energy to that and for and for the climate activist community to devote its energy to that while they still can. And in some sense, I feel like adaptation will take care of itself. That's not the right phrase. Will will proceed as it's going to proceed, more or less regardless of what climate activists do, <laughs> right? Based on these local and regional dynamics. Does that make sense? So I just feel like mitigation is the better focus for the bulk of the energies of people concerned about climate change right now. But I feel like I can say that without saying anything negative about adaptation. Well, a couple things. And so I, d- I did a podcast. I went over to Uganda covering an adaptation conference over there. And, you know, these are people in Africa and Asia. And so talking to women from Malawi, and as they were talking about adaptation, they were saying that because of drought, that you know, 3 million people were under threat of starvation in Malawi. And, you know, that's improvement from the previous year, which was like 5 million or something. And it really, mm. you know, the, the sort of adaptation conversations that we have in this country about these fundamental things like sea one, you know, you're hearing from people like that. It's like, oh, L- losing your losing your right. second beach home. <laughs> well, and, and even Houston, <laughs> where it got kind of in people's faces, like it was really useful to go to to Africa and talk to people like that. I mean, these are some really big issues. And I guess my point is that it it made you think about mitigation again. It's like, holy crap, we better get that shit under control. And then uh, the second point about you said that we need to deal with mitigation right now. And so what's happening in the adaptation field? is that a lot of people don't even want to have those arguments. So they'll go to like a Farm Bureau meeting or they'll go to a local government and they just, climate change is too political. They can't talk about it, but they'll talk about adaptation without talking about climate change because the farmer will want to know ways to more efficiently use water. And so you don't necessarily even have to talk about it. I get kind of pissed when I hear that that's the approach that a lot of these people are taking because there is a very small window to educate folks. And if you know, you're not sitting there throwing <laughs> sand in their eyes, but you're just matter of factly owning up that this is climate change that we're responding to. And if a few people learn a lesson, great. If a few people just kind of, you know, they put up a wall, you know what? They're going to put up their walls for any number of reasons. And I think that is a trend that's happening in areas in the Midwest and of course the Southeast. And it's, it's a missed opportunity of educating people. Well, I mean, this sort of a unanswerable question, right? Like on the one hand, you want to tangibly improve their lives to the extent you're able, right? And if that means swallowing your climate talk, you know, I see the I see the impetus for that. I see the rationale for that. But then on the other hand, like you say, like it's a long-term problem. It's not going to go away with one bit of adaptation, you know, so like somebody needs to educate these people, but do you think that airdropping in, you know, sort of adaptation professionals to North Dakota is the best way to change North Dakotans' mind? I mean, this gets back to something that I, a point that I made on the on the site the other day, which is tangentially related to what we're talking about, but it's one of my hobby horses, so I have to say it now. 
how do you deal with climate change in a country where the the base of one of the two major political parties doesn't believe it exists or is a problem? The answer to that question is there's no good way to do that. There is no answer to that question. <laughs> there, there's, right? Like the question you're asking, there's no one good right answer to that question. Both those are suboptimal <laughs> approaches. The approach you want is go to North Dakota, find farmers who believe in climate change, and talk collaboratively with them about what combination of mitigation and adaptation is appropriate to their local circumstances. That's what you want. We don't have the ability to make that happen. One of the most sort of toxic and ridiculous tropes of the climate discussion, as long as I've been around, is what is it that environmentalists are doing that are making Republicans and conservatives be so crazy about this? And I'm just like, that's the stupid way to phrase the question. We are not responsible <laughs> for their social dynamics and their beliefs. The ones who are lying to them are their leaders, the people on their media, right? Rush Limbaugh and their politicians and mostly media figures and Breitbart. And that's who they believe. They don't listen to us. They believe, like all human beings, they trust their own tribal uh, uh, peers and leaders, just like everybody does. We listen to ours. They listen to theirs. So the only people who have the power to change the right-wing basis thinking on climate change is right-wing elites, right? It's not environmentalist responsibility that they think that way. There's no magic set of words environmentalists can say to break that spell. There's no magic argument where you invoke national security or you invoke, you know, jobs or there's no set of magic words that's going to break the spell on conservatives. The only people who can do that are right wing elites, the ones who are lying to them. So as we collectively think about issues of blame and responsibility and culpability, I just want us to keep this front and center. The reason those farmers in North Dakota can't have a sane discussion about climate change and what it means for them is because conservative leaders have been lying to them. So your adaptation professionals are in a catch-22. There's no good answer to your question, right? They can go in and not talk about climate and have some modest positive effect or they can go in and try to talk about climate at risk of alienating the farmers and having no positive effect, right? There's no, there's no answer to that question. The answer to that question is for conservative leaders and elites to stop lying to their base about climate change. They are the locus of responsibility, and they are the ones who can change it, not us, not climate hawks, not Dems, not Al friggin' Gore, Right? They are responsible. So, and until they change that, we're stuck with a bunch of these catch 22s, a bunch of these questions with no good answers. How do you turn an entire political culture and society in the direction of a clean energy transition when 30% of it is wallowing in a fog of ignorance and hostility? There is no good answer to that question, right? There's not. It's not that no one's come up with a secret answer yet. It's that there is no good answer to it. There is no way to do it. The way to do it is change 
their minds, and the people who can change their minds are their leaders. So if we want to say who's responsible for America's ridiculous backwardsness on on climate policy and its ridiculous lack of foresight and wisdom, we know where to point the finger. It is conservative leaders and media figures, not anyone else. Amen. Amen. <laughs> they're into they're into my rant. No, and that's I think the the one positive thing I think could come out of a Trump presidency if he somehow radically pivoted and just said climate change is the biggest issue facing us that it would like his base of course he'd fall him off a cliff and so I mean I know it's not going to happen but it's like it has to be that person it's not Barack Obama it's not Al Gore it's it's someone like you said part of the tribe and yeah. Yeah, it would have to be like Rush Limbaugh. It would have to be Rush Limbaugh and people like him going on the radio and saying, you know, and 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 he would know how to do it instinctively, right? He wouldn't just go say, I've converted, you know, I'm a climate guy now. He would figure out a way to explain why caring about accepting climate change, caring about it and acting to stop it would piss off liberals, right? He would find some way of framing it that way. And that's fine. That's fine. However, he needs to do it. But only he has the power to to, to shift those people. Um, I got one more question for you, but I, I just want to. So on a previous episode, I, but I and Randy Olson helped arrange this. I had Mark Mirando on the podcast, and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the informational value right, okay. of that is. So but. it wasn't to have a debate with a guy. I didn't want that. It'd be boring for my listeners. It was more about, okay, Mark, come on on. And it was a long conversation and a lot about, you know, his history and his motivations behind what he does and just sort of the logic or lack thereof. And then Randy came on afterwards after listening to it and basically kind of taking him apart. And Mark knew we were going to do this to his credit. He knew he's friends with Randy and Randy came in and just said, this is why Mark is, you know, an effectual speaker for X number. I mean, of course, everything he's saying is nonsense, but it's just like and just as you described Rush Limbaugh, how he would do it. He is instinctually able to do it. And so that episode was more about, okay, what motivates you, Mark? And then Randy coming on and just dissecting the hell out of it. And uh, it was actually a pretty fascinating episode. And this is, I feel like there's a lesson to take from this. Mark Morano has no, he doesn't fear being criticized or even debunked at all. At all. He loves it. He, He wants it, right? They... Like they get on an instinctive level that inserting their perspective into the public dialogue is its own end, right? They don't need to win the argument necessarily. I think Mark Morano probably knows in his heart that he's not convincing anyone to change their mind about anything. They get that getting that perspective out there and in circulation is its own reward, right? That's all they need is for the debate to to proceed. They get that on a gut level that I feel like we don't. Like I feel like people, I don't want to say liberals, whatever you want to call it, want to believe that the substance of the argument is what matters, and that like when that like having a better argument and more facts at your command matters. <laughs> And is what adjudicates and is what adjudicates who wins these things, right? Which is totally wrong, one thousand percent wrong. You know, human cognitive 
you know, if you've done any reading about the sort of limitations and and uh, and uh, flaws in the human cognitive apparatus, you'll know that that's just not the way life works. And so, I feel like the Mark Moranos and the Myron Ebels of the world get that. They understand that an argument is a form of performance, right? It's not the grade, you know, it's not winning it. It's it's having it properly that is their goal, and they're really good at that, and we just fall for it over and over again. So I, like. I was a bit nervous releasing that because, you know, most of my listeners are offended by someone like Mark, and actually I got a, a ton of feedback from listeners that they really enjoyed it, and mo- for them the most surprising thing, they actually liked Mark, but the bigger picture was they they thought yeah. <laughs> you know they didn't agree with a word he said and they liked what Randy did when he came on and the sort of the whole one two punch of it. But yeah, I was a bit nervous that oh you're just giving a platform for this guy that kind of spouts out this venom. But that wasn't the point of the podcast. It was about learning from his motivations, what he's thinking, and then having Randy come on. And that's what my listeners got. So I, I was pretty happy with it that they're just like you know what <laughs> they, they it made them reassess and what you just described about the sort of instinctual ability to connect with people. It had them kind of thinking like that. So, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And I feel like one of the effect of the effects of polarization and, and bubbles, you know, there's all this talk lately about information bubbles that everybody resides in and, and sort of the great sort and how we don't ever mix with one another. Now, one of the sort of effects of that is that the demographics who believe and care about climate change, and the demographics who who devote themselves to denying it and bullshitting about it and not believing it rarely encounter one another in the wild. And so I feel like a lot of climate people have this cartoonish version in their heads of what deniers are and what motivates them. You know, these sort of just crass sellouts, just taking Exxon checks and lying because they're just just greedy and venal, you know, and, and the fact is that most people in the world just aren't like that. <laughs> you know, there's not, the world is not populated with mustache twirling <laughs> villains. Most of the people on that side probably are, are nice to their kids, you know, and are like decent human beings. And probably you can have a beer with them and probably have good, a probably believe what they're saying. Like the number of people who are lying and know they're lying and are lying on purpose about stuff like this, I think is vastly lower than estimated by climate types. Like I think very few people lie regularly on purpose, knowing that they're lying. I think most people in the climate denial community believe what they're saying and have what seem to them honorable motives, right? Everybody thinks they're the hero of their own, of their own story. Like Mark Morano doesn't go home tonight and say, ha I, I lied to people in exchange for oil money again today. It was a good day. Well, you know, he's, he has a story about what he does. So understanding, my point is understanding those stories, like, like you're saying, bringing those people on to just getting a glimpse of those stories is helpful on a human level. And, and I'm just saying, we spent a chunk of time on him, like saying, I'm not in it for the money. And he sort of explained his history. And so he wanted to make it perfectly. And, you know, of course, he's throwing some shade at climate scientists and how they're in it for the money. And, you know, you, just, you kind of take that with a yeah, shade of, uh, yeah. you know. But, I mean, he just – he really wants to make a point about, like, you know, I left a job where I could have gotten retirement. And so, you know, I, I, I believed him on that. I believed he wasn't – Yeah, I totally – I 
I totally believe him. I mean, why would you, if you just wanted to make money, why would you do that? It's the same thing with, but, but, you know, like you say, it's the same thing with Al Gore. Like, if Al Gore really wanted to become rich, he's like, I know, I'll spend five years schlepping around the world, flying coach, giving slideshows to small audiences to build awareness of this problem. And then five years from now, I'll start an investment firm. Once I've convinced everybody, then I'll get in on their IPOs. I'm just like, Al Gore could have gotten rich a thousand different ways. Why the fuck would he choose this Baroque, you know, bank shot plan to get rich? It's just a ridiculous account of human motivations. And, you know, I say I say in our bubble, we have a cartoonish view of them. But obviously, like conversely, it's 10 times worse. Like if you go into one of these right wing bubbles, these comment sections or, 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 or where they hang out and talk to them about how they see climate hawks and climate scientists. It is, it is such a, I mean, cartoonish doesn't even cover it. It's like this ridiculous figure out of bad fiction. And, and, and it's because they never encounter one, you know, like the people on their side don't do what you did, which is like, Let's expand our minds and, and, and encounter different perspectives and explore different motivations. They don't do that. It's, it's all cartoonish all the time for them. So they, you know, like you wouldn't – I feel like the arguments we're having, because we're so far outside those bubbles and we're not really even particularly cognizant, most people, of what goes on inside those bubbles, I think most people would be horrified horrified if they really genuinely immersed themselves in far-right media for just a few days. Most people have no idea, but because they never encounter us on a human level either. So, you, you know, and, but then you're back to how do you solve the bubbles? Like, how do you solve polarization? Like, how do you reach people who have spent the last three or four decades deliberately, consciously hiving themselves off into an insular bubble where they now have their own politicians, their own set of institutions, their own set of knowledge-producing institutions, their own set of facts, <laughs> their own history, their own version of, of current events, like literally a self-contained, complete worldview from which they never have to emerge, how do you solve any major social problem in that context? And I don't know I don't know the answer to that, but like climate is just one of the <laughs> it's just one of the problems that's gonna be hard to solve with that. Well on that you note, know, my next published guest on Monday is the Cato Institute. So yeah, I've got a little um, uh, it was a fascinating. Who they know? It was a, it was all about adaptation too. It wasn't about climate science. So it was a fascinating conversation. I actually got the guy kind of coming around to my point, which I was a little dumbfounded. I'm like, gosh, really? You agree with me here? <laughs> but listen, I, I want to finish this off with one question, and I ask this for every guest: is that if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would you recommend? Oh, interesting. Well, that's an interesting question indeed. Well, I feel bad because I feel like I should not cite a fellow middle-aged <laughs> white bearded man. <laughs> but but uh, I am a nerd, and my favorite nerd 
is probably Trevor Hauser at the moment. I don't know if you know who that is. He works. He works. Uh, he's an analyst, an energy analyst. He works at the Rhodium Group. They're called, and he was a a key advisor on the Hillary Clinton campaign. He helped put together her coal uh, coal community recovery plan and her energy plan and and all this. And anyway, he's just an he's just the energy wonks energy wonk. Like he's got the facts and figures. So and and he's and he's well spoken and can speak like a human being. So he would be he would be entertaining. I'm gonna of course write you an email tomorrow with all the people that I should have thought of that I oh, that do. I didn't. Yeah, and I that sounds like a great conversation and just I I as you figured out I don't focus so much on energy, but I can I oh, yeah, can that's easily true. have that conversation, but like even climate and culture, climate communication, it doesn't have to be just adaptation, but it's just like for you, 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 you look at it from a three dimensional way. Those are great ways to have the conversation. So think like that too. But, uh, and people that you can get like introduce me to that goes a long way to actually them coming on the podcast. So kind of think that way. Sure. Sure. I don't actually have, I don't know a lot about the adaptation community. I mean, is there, is there one? I mean, is there a distinct community well, of people? All these people growing right now, and- just as you said that, uh, there's a, Adaptation, like professional society, <laughs> Sorry, and there's a uh, no. It is small and it's emerging, but you know what? I don't want it to just totally be about adaptation. Like if you had other, you sure. have been writing and doing your thing for a while, and I imagine you cross paths with a lot of interesting reporters or just people doing interesting work. And so, yeah, this might come to you later. And not that I'm dismissing the one that you recommended, but just uh, maybe there's a, a more perfect kind of example that I would love to get on. I will. I will think on it. Well, I have your email, so I can <laughs> I can get in touch with you. <laughs> All right. On that note, any sort of final thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, no. Just that I want to stress that I do not see mitigation and adaptation as in conflict or supporting one as coming at the expense of one another. And I think and hope that most people are beyond that by now. Okay. Well, this conversation lived up to my expectations i was a little worried you might be aloof and just would like give me one word answers or something but that wasn't the case at all <laughs> oh my god i love talking Doug. <laughs> I if, I could, if i talk professionally instead of write, i would do that well, in a heartbeat ask you that you i mean you seem like the total personality to have your own podcast you must have considered it right well it's about whether i want to voluntarily take oh, on exactly. more work <laughs> If you knew more about my personality, you'd realize that I never do that. You so. could get a like a graduate student or someone who would do just most of all the shitty legwork for you, and you would just come on to the microphone and do your thing. I'm telling you, the people out there would love to work with you. Just I'm throwing it out there. You would be a great podcaster. You know, the kind of podcast I would do if I had all the time and money and effort to invest in it, it would end up coming out like the Energy Transition Podcast. You ever listen to that? No, Chris no, Nelder. Chris Nelder is a, a longtime energy analyst who now works for the Rocky Mountain Institute and started a podcast for them called the Energy Transition Podcast. And to get full versions of the episodes, you have to subscribe. It's like five dollars a month or something. But it is, it is the nerdiest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It is glorious. Like I just, when I was walking my dog yesterday, I listened to his episode that was entirely about climate modeling, the kinds of models 
that they use at the IPCC and other places like that. And it was an hour and 45 minutes long. And it was so in depth and just like wallowed <laughs> in the details. It was awesome. Anyway, that's that's the kind of podcast I would do if I was going to do one. It's like a super nerdy niche 12, 12 subscriber deep dive. But but Chris Chris is already doing it really exquisitely well. I recommend it to uh, to your listeners. Uh, so I'm just going to listen to what well, he just, does. And another so. pitch for it too is that you you're struggling with finding that time to ponder these topics, and you I think you would find talking out loud about these subjects that you're dealing with in a podcast yeah. would actually you would be creating content for Vox I think however you would arranged it <laughs> and you're getting that chance to ponder and I guess you would have sort of a guest format too I just knowing who all the people you know it's just it would it would be a way to create content as you're pondering anyway that's my two cents on it so well, if I could clone myself, definitely my clone would start right. a podcast as one of the first as one of the first things he did. Okay, thanks, David. And on that note, thanks, adapters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a blast with this conversation. It was fun doing research and actually having the conversation with David. But David, have a great week. Thank you. You too. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to David Roppers for coming on the podcast. I learned a ton from David. From his writing, he really does get a chance to ponder these huge topics. I think many of us get tunnel vision on what we do, and David, when he can, tries to dig into some of these subjects and shares that to the rest of us. David has the climate and energy beat at Vox News, but I wouldn't be surprised if adaptation kept creeping into more and more of his articles. I hope so. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. Seriously, I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americaadapts.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially the link to the donate page. Again, please consider supporting the podcast. I will be going on location more in the coming year, and it requires ongoing support from all of you. I hope you consider donating. You can do a recurring donation or a one-time donation. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.